0: As we have been studying the Messianic Psalms, we have noted that what makes a particular psalm Messianic is that it prophetically ties with the coming Christ in one way or another. Of course, Messiah is the Old Testament Hebrew word, Christ is the New Testament Greek word uh, translated into English there. Uh, These psalms portray all kinds of things about the coming Messiah, Uh, his suffering but also his coming reign. However, there's one psalm, and only one that portrays his coming wedding, and that is Psalm 45. Uh, Psalm 45 is a wedding song, and again, it's the only psalm in the book of Psalms with this particular theme. So you say, well, you know, we don't want to use Psalm 45 on our wedding day, we want to use another one. Well, good luck on that. Uh, (laughs) There's only one psalm with really a strong, pervasive wedding theme, and that's, Psalm 45. Clearly, it does portray a wedding, and we know definitively from the New Testament that it ultimately has the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, in view, as Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 clearly applies specifically to Jesus Christ. I did read this psalm to my daughter Faith on her wedding day, and she, of course, had some of her friends there around as I was reading this, this psalm, and they all kind of looked at me like What does that mean? And that's what I hope to explain to you tonight. Uh, Let's begin with an overview of the psalm. Whoops. ahead of me. Sorry. There we go. Uh, Messianic wedding theme. It starts out with a poetic preface. And then in verses 2 through 9, the the king groom is addressed. And then 10 through 15, the, the princess bride is addressed. And finally, a poetic benediction certainly has a lot of application for us as the church, because ultimately we are the bride of Christ. Uh, Israel is spoken of as the wife of God in the Old Testament, and that's true, you have that typology there. But the church specifically is spoken of as the bride of Christ. And again, because of the intersection with Christ in particular in the New Testament, I think there is specific application for us as the church here uh, in a very definite sense. Let's pick it up. Psalm 45, To the chief musician set to contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. Note, uh, it is clearly a love song, but it is interesting that it is attributed to the sons of Korah. Of the sons of Korah. Now, Korah is infamous. I didn't just say famous, but really infamous. uh, In the Old Testament, for his rebellion, known as Korah's Rebellion, as seen in Numbers chapter 16. A little bit of background there. Korah was a cousin of Moses and Aaron and a descendant of Levi. And as such, he had a really privileged position as a Levite, really quite close to a lot of spiritual things and an honored position in a lot of ways. But there was some restrictions. He could not serve as a priest. Uh, And so the priests were of the family of Aaron in particular. Then there was also uh, Dathan and Abiram who were of the tribe of Reuben involved here too. Under the key leadership of Korah, they led a rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, which really amounted to a hostile takeover attempt. Uh, They really wanted to take over the leadership position of Moses and Aaron. That's what the issue was. The issue, as is spelled out in Numbers 16, 5-7, was all about whom God had chosen for the key leadership roles. And Korah and company said to Moses and Aaron, quote, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. Now, I think they could probably defend that from Scripture, right? I mean, all the congregation is called holy. Uh, so then they said, why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Number 16, 3. It sounded so spiritual. We're all equals here. But in truth, it was very wicked. By the way, watch out for self-made men who, according to their own agenda, try to put themselves into position. That's what Korah was doing. It's the spirit of Korah. So serious was their sin that number 16 records their fate in this way. It was very unique what God did here. Number 16, 32 through 33 the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. You don't see that every day. Uh, with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. This is literally going to hell alive. I mean, that's they just kind of went down there. I mean, it sucked them up. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Well, that took care of that. God did speak in this case. Now, verse 32 by itself sounds like all the families perished with them. Did you catch that where it says there, uh, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the men with Korah? I mean, it almost sounds like, well, Korah and his whole family has happened to them. But uh, as we compare the scriptures, uh, we see in Numbers 26.11, it's very clear that the children of Korah did not die. And this is an example where, you know, the sins of the father, children are not necessarily responsible. They're not. They give account for their own sins and vice versa. Indeed, some of his descendants, Korah's descendants, are mentioned in Numbers 26, 58, also 1 Chronicles 9, 19. And a number of the Psalms were actually written by the sons of Korah. I mean, they make a major contribution to the book of Psalms, the songbook of God's people. In fact, the prophet Samuel was a direct descendant of Korah. Eleven of the Psalms are attributed to the sons of Korah, including the love psalm of Psalm 45. Now, the Korites were gatekeepers of the temple, but most scholars believe that they also became prominent musicians, singers, songwriters, who were involved in leading Israel in the worship of Yahweh. Now, a key question in view is... What king is in view in this particular psalm? Obviously, it's a royal wedding. The king is the major focus here. What king are we talking about here? Well, we're not told, but many think it applies to a historic Davidic king, which in turn has greater fulfillment in the Messiah. It certainly does have greater fulfillment in the Messiah. But did it have a historical occasion for some other Davidic king back here? Some say, well, what about David? What about Solomon? You know, Solomon had many weddings, so lots of opportunities. I'm just kidding about all that. But, you know, we really don't know. Uh, We know from Psalm 45, 6, and 7, which are quoted in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, that it definitely has application to Jesus, and that ultimately this psalm has the Messiah in view because of that. Well, clearly the Messiah is ultimately in view, as I as seen in the number one, the principal character is called God in verse six, and he has an eternal throne, verse six. And because of this, some commentators think the best view is to take the entire psalm as symbolically portraying the Messiah as the divine bridegroom and his people as the bride. And certainly that is ultimately what is being portrayed. Well, let's pick it up, verse one. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So the writer is excited with his heart overflowing as he recites his thoughts about the wedding of this king. And although there may be use of some hyperbole in speaking of a human Davidic king, if that is ultimately what was initially in view, again, ultimately, the content of the psalm can only apply to the divine Messiah king. Note the poetic language, which in effect says he can hardly contain himself as he delightfully prepares to write. Now, weddings in the Bible denote a joyous celebration, a joyous occasion. And this wedding of the great king is the most joyous of all celebrations. Verse 2, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Again, this king prince, this, this king groom, is pictured as the most handsome of all people. He's beautiful. And he speaks wonderful words of grace as he is God-blessed forever. Now, oriental weddings put the emphasis on the groom instead of on the bride. What do you think? Is that more biblical? We, us Guys, we're, we're not saying amen to this. We're, we're just laying low here. But it is true that they did put the emphasis on the, on the groom and not on the bride. They would say, here come, they'd sing, here comes the groom. <laughs> uh, and that's the emphasis here. It's largely about the royal bridegroom in, in all of his beauty, majestic might, purity, justice, and exaltation, which are portrayed. And ultimately, as we think about Jesus Christ in view here, that's appropriate, right? We as the bride of Christ are going to say, well, you know what? Jesus, I think you should stand down a little bit. It should be mostly about us. No, we're not going to do that. It's about the king. It's about the messianic king. This is is his big day. This is his royal wedding day. Verse 3, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Note the terms, uh, such as mighty one, your glory, your majesty, truth, humility, and righteousness, and the peoples fall under you. They're all in keeping with a messianic theme, ultimately. In view here, ultimately, I believe, is the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to put down his enemies. And he's bringing his bride with him. Uh, to the celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's going to be a glorious revelation of His bride before all. Note that particular phrase, the peoples fall under you. Certainly, we see this Messianic theme in the Old Testament Scriptures. Oops, I'm having a problem here. Genesis 49.10, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet, until Shiloh comes." Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs." And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And again, in Psalm 2, clearly a messianic psalm, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And then that leads in to one of the key verses that clearly link with Jesus the Messiah. In verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In presenting his arguments, showing that Jesus is greater than the angels, or anyone else for that matter, the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse. So we have a quote here in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So you can see that comes right out of Psalm 45, verse 6. Well, here, as we see in Hebrews, Jesus is clearly called God, and his throne is said to be forever, and that he will rule in righteousness. Now, God promised the house of David an eternal throne, which ultimately will be fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. God here is the Hebrew word Elohim. And it's normally used of deity in the sense of higher power who is the supreme being. However, there were a few cases in the Old Testament where the term was used in an honorary way. Uh, for example, of judges who functioned as God's representatives in a godlike way, as judging is ultimately the role of God. Clearly, the sense in Hebrews 1 8 is that of God who is supreme. The supreme being. Because in that very context, in Hebrews 1, the writer just got done saying that the Son is the exact representation of God. Hebrews 1, 3. So the flow of thought is clearly talking about this one who is the exact representation of God. That is God. Well, this clearly connects Psalm 45 to Messiah Jesus. The scepter is a symbol of ruling authority and what defines his rule is that of justice or righteousness. Verse 7 continues. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with, oil, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And again, this verse is also applied to Jesus in the New Testament as seen in Hebrews 1.9. So, note there, again, you see exactly. Exact same thing. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Note here, the king in second person is called God, that's Elohim, in verse 6. But then in third person, God, your God, also Elohim, has anointed him in verse 7. In this way, the divine king is distinguished from another member of the Godhead who is also called God. Did you catch that? God, your God. But he's also called God himself in verse 6. Well, this makes way for a progressive revelation which ultimately shows the truth of the Trinity that the Godhead consists of three persons who make up the one true God. Moody Bible Commentary, implicit here, is a distinction between the divine King Messiah and the divine Father. Well, anointing in the Old Testament indicated the setting aside of a particular person for some specialized role. Here the king is being anointed with the oil of gladness, which is, symbolic, uh, is a symbolic way of saying that God's joy is being poured out upon him to mark him in this unique role as the king Groom. This is a time of great joy that God has brought about. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. This is what this is portraying. More than your companions. I mean, this is the greatest of all joy. Verse 8. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory places by which they have made you glad. So again, the king's royal robes were perfumed with all manner of luxurious fragrances and was delightful to all the senses. That's the picture. The New American Standard adds that out of the ivory places, quote, stringed instruments have made thee glad. The whole atmosphere here really depicts joy and gladness. Time of celebration and joy. Verse 9, king's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold, from Ophir, or Ophir. Uh, the king has royal attendants at the wedding, the king's daughters, and at his right hand stands the queen arrayed in gold. Gold from Ophir denotes that which is the finest gold. Now, where exactly Ophir was located, we, again, are not really certain. Some say maybe Arabia, some say India. Wherever it was, we see it referenced a number of times in the Old Testament as being very famous for the best gold In the world. Well, this wedding is to be glorious to behold. The smells, the sounds, the sights, they're all glorious. In verses 2 through 9, the king groom has been addressed. But now, in verses 10 through 15, the princess bride is addressed. And the emphasis here is on, indeed, now it's time to sing, Here Comes the Bride. And even though the major focus is on the king, the bride also shares in the glory of the moment. And we should pay special attention, as I say here, because I believe the church is ultimately the Messiah's bride. Now, some have been hesitant to make application to the church here because, as we find in the New Testament, the truth of the church was not revealed until the time of the apostles and the New Testament prophets. However, I think it can clearly be established that while it was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament, it was hidden there. Augustine famously said, famous quote from Augustine, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And J. Vernon McGee says on that line, the church is not mentioned by name in the Old Testament, but I believe you see it in type." or in figures of speech. I think that's true. There's a number of places that I think we could bring that out. So I think Psalm 45 is a case where we have a hint of Messiah's Bride, which is then further revealed to be the church in New Testament revelation. But we wouldn't know this. We wouldn't know this without further revelation of New Testament truth, just like we wouldn't know that uh, ultimately marriage is a picture of Christ and His church. We wouldn't know that without New Testament revelation. And so it is here as well. Clearly, uh, the bride of Christ is said to be the church, as we find in Revelation 19, Revelation 21, and Revelation 22. Verse 10 Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. This is a call to the would be bride to leave her people and fully commit to her king. And this is what the church has done in our commitment to Christ. It's pictured in the New Testament as a marriage commitment. We're married to Jesus Christ. It's a sacred covenant commitment. We have forsaken all and said, I do to Christ, above all. Saving faith is pictured as a covenant commitment in which we become married to Christ. Moody Bible Commentary, She must cut ties with her past and bow down to the King, the Lord. She will then be privileged to enter the king's palace. We know we're married to Christ. We have different references, uh, Romans 7 and so forth. But here in 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2, Paul says to the Christians at Corinth, the Corinthian church, for I am jealous for, for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that's Christ, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In the Jewish culture, there was a one-year betrothal period, which is similar to what we call engagement. And the couple at that point was legally considered married, but it was not fully consummated until the official marriage ceremony. And that's where we are as a church with Christ. We're married to Him already. When you were betrothed, you were considered legally married wasn't consummated yet officially, but you were still considered legally. Made. That's where we are with Christ. We're married to him already in the sense that we're betrothed to him. But the official wedding ceremony awaits the coming of Christ for his church. He's going to take us back to Father's house, and that's where we're going to have the official ceremony. Before the bride is brought into the king's presence, she is given this charge. To which it is expected that she will respond positively. Verse 11. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. The bride in her separation to the king, which was just called for in verse 10, is seen to be beautiful in that commitment. Her set-apartness to him is something greatly desired by the king. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. In what? In forsaking your people, and committing to him. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And since he is the Lord, he is worthy. Worthy to be worshipped. Not only is the king the husband of the bride, he is also her Lord to be worshipped. Verse 12, And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. So when the people come to the wedding, they often bring gifts. And the picture here is that the richest people in the world, represented by Tyre, which is a very wealthy Mediterranean, uh, on the seacoast there, port, very wealthy port, uh, bringing gifts. They are represented by Tyre as bringing gifts to, to present to the bride who is now in the most favored position as being married to the king. As I say, Tyre was a major trading center on the Mediterranean coast, uh, famous for its extravagant wealth. It's way up north there. Uh, you see on the map here, way up north to Tyre. Tyre and Sidon are often linked together. But it was a wealthy place in its day. It was known for its wealth. And that's what's being portrayed here. Those that separate themselves and become joined to the king and know him as Lord, are forever blessed in this commitment, and this will be fully realized in the kingdom. Uh, You know, what do you think the king's going to do? What's going to be done for the bride? I think it's going to be extravagant, beyond what we can even begin to imagine. Verse 13, The royal daughter is all-glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. The Messiah's bride here is dressed in regal splendor, preparatory to her being presented to the king. I mean, she is looking mighty fine. All decked out in gold. Did you catch that? Her clothing is woven with gold. We're wearing gold on this occasion. Verse 14. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. Very beautiful. Very colorful. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. So the bride is all decked out in attire that is multicolored and she too has attendants. We saw in verse 7 the king groom had companions and now in verse 14 we see that the princess bride also has attendants. These attendants are probably the Old Testament saints, uh, the tribulation saints, perhaps angels. Whoever they all are, they will join in on this glorious celebration. And it's going to be a celebration. Verse 15, With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Christ is coming to get us, take us back to Father's house. Here I think called the palace. Again, this is a time of gladness and rejoicing. It's the greatest wedding celebration of all time. This is the Messiah's wedding day. And you, the bride of Christ, are going to have a very prominent role on this day. Well, that brings us to verses 16 and 17, where we have the benediction, in effect, given by God the Father. Verse 16. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. The focus seems to be here, not just on the patriarchs now. There's kind of a, a change of direction here which we now know relates to the church in the New Testament. It's a little unclear, but the common view is stated by the Moody Bible Commentary, which says, quote, continuing and slightly mixing the metaphor, the psalmist concluded by focusing on the eternal testimony of God's redemptive glory, namely, the sons or children of the Messianic King, that is, his people, believers. William MacDonald says, the Father promises him sons who will be worthy successors of the patriarchs? Uh, Home and Christian Study Bible quotes it this way or uh, translates it this way: "Your sons, which I take it ultimately to be the church, uh, will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land, and indeed, he will. I mean, we're going to reign with Christ. We're going to rule with Christ." That's Revelation 5. I mean, the scene is still in heaven. The church is caught up uh, to heaven. And here you have the scene in heaven in in Revelation 4 and 5 before it returns to the scene comes to earth and the judgments begin to be poured out in chapter 6. And what are they doing there? Well, they're singing. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. What a day that's going to be. What a song that's going to be that we will sing in that that day. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, we read, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. Talking about the Messiah here in the context of Isaiah 53. I will divide him a portion with the great. Messiah is going to share in this portion and he's going to share it with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul into death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors all descriptive of what he did on the cross here. Now, when it says, I will divide him a portion with the great, the word great is actually the same word which is translated as many in verse 11, which we didn't read. I take my word for it. A better translation is seen in the ESV, which renders this, I will divide him a portion with the many. Well, who are the strong? Well, the strong are the many mentioned in the first part of the verse. The strong are believers who have come to know the Lord. And they're in that position of strength because of God's grace. The strong are the weak who have been made strong by virtue of their position in Christ, which is a very powerful, strong position. As the verse itself indicates... The strong are those who have become the beneficiaries of Christ's death as He bore the sin of many. That's how you get into a position of strength. Through Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. This is our only and sole basis of being strong. We are not self-made people. We are not self-made strong. We're in that position by grace. But in Christ, we share in his resurrection strength and his resurrection victory. And in that strong position, we will be on display. We will be made visible in the kingdom. Verse 17, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Back to really emphasizing the king here. Notice, this king, who is the Messiah, is forever blessed. And there's a forever theme here. Note uh, the emphasis here as we have worked our way through the psalm. In Psalm 45.2, God has blessed you forever. 45.6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 17, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. The Messiah King is God-blessed forever. His throne is forever. His name will be remembered forever. And praise will be given to Him forever and ever. You know what? It's kind of nice to think about this sometimes, but political leaders come and go. Have you noticed this? They're all vapors. A blip on the screen of history. But the Messiah, that's different. He's forever His throne is forever. And here is the glorious part. We, as the bride of Christ, will share in His victory forever. That's glorious. Even though we have not seen Jesus, we love Him. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8. But one day, one day we're going to see Him. And when we see Him, the Bible says we shall be like Him. Isaiah thirty three seventeen 17 says, Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. And we can't even begin to imagine how glorious that will be. But we will be there. I mean, I sometimes pinch myself just to realize I'm going to be there all because of grace. I look at myself, I'm a miserable failure. Amen? Yeah, amen. It's true. It's true for all of us. But by grace, we are betrothed to Christ. And next up is the official wedding ceremony at the Father's house, at the palace, followed by the marriage supper of the Lamb as we return to the earth for the kingdom celebration. One day, Christ is going to summon His bride, the church, to Himself. And then the bride will be officially presented to Christ The Divine Bridegroom. This will be His glorious day. It will also be our glorious day. But really the focus will be primarily on Him. And we as believers by grace will share in it. We will then enjoy the intimacy of His love forever. As Paul says, And thus we shall always be with the Lord. You know, uh, you get married, you enter into this thing together. And you're together. And that's the way it is with us and Jesus. As as the bride of Christ, when he comes for us, we're going to be with him. And thus we'll always be with Lord. Wherever the Lord goes, we'll go. Uh, Whatever relates to him, we'll share in. And so we say with John the Apostle, even so come, Lord Jesus. We have a lot to look forward to as the bride of Christ. Let's stand and have our closing song. And I'll close in prayer.